This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. So this show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, especially during our live training programs, check out The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got a lot of fundamentals of dating, attraction, body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, networking, relationship development, breakups, etc. There's a lot more than you might think and a lot of it's more important than you might think. And we've got our live training programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California, Details at bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. There's two dots in there. Or give us a call, 888-413-7177. Or you can just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything. And I'm looking forward to meeting all you guys here in Los Angeles at The Art of Charm. Today, we're talking with my friend, Rich Roll. He's a health advocate who used to be an overweight lawyer, like many of us once were. We're going to talk about the gap between inspiration and implementation, the importance of community and accountability in any success equation, why our so-called hacking culture isn't helping, even biohacking, even though it's part of the show, and the power of story, what the story is that you tell yourself about yourself and how to change it. Now this and more with Rich Roll. Would you consider yourself then a health expert or are you just a, like a former fat guy that's now really healthy? I mean, where do you fall on that? I kind of steer clear of the word expert. Like I'll use the word advocate. Uh, you know, I try to share from my experience. Uh, you know, I don't try to hold myself out as the person with all the answers. I'm more the guy who's been there, done that, and I'm on the journey along with you sharing what I've learned. But I think advocate is, is kind of more apropos. So you're a proponent of health, even if you know less about it than somebody who wrote a really clever ebook. Yeah, I mean, I probably know, I'm not making I probably you know more that. than that guy. You know what I mean? Like I can pontificate on this stuff all day long, but you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a professional athlete, but I, but I'm well versed in all of those things. Yeah, I was just busting your balls. Obviously, I have you on here for a reason. And it is very true. There's a lot of people, and I, I noticed this when I look through iTunes as well, because now the new thing is authors having podcasts as opposed to podcasters becoming authors. And so they'll be like, oh, this new diet. Oh, you can eat cardboard and it tastes like sugary chicken and yay, everything's healthy. And then it's like, oh, just kidding. Good thing I sold 60,000 copies of that and went on Dr. Oz, right? And they're all experts. Right. Those people are the experts. So I don't like having them on because their agenda is not aligned. And a lot of those people have never been fat. So they don't get what it's like to look at a piece of lean ahi tuna and a giant cheesecake and go, which one of these should I eat for dinner? I also think that a lot of those people are much more interested in how big their email list is and how many units they're going to sell than actually the quality of what it is that they're selling. Sure. Yeah, of course, the interests are just not aligned. And so tell us your sort of origin story here. You're jacked in your pictures. You Google Rich Roll and you do Google Images, it's like you are like the epitome surfer, lean body looking guy. 
And in fact, I was like, oh, of course, some tall, skinny guys talking about health and fitness, like big whoop. What's the news? And then I found out that you weren't always like that. No, definitely not. You know, right now I'm a recovering lawyer. <laughs> I'm a I'm a lawyer by trade. I just turned 48, but uh, when I was 40 years old, uh, or just shy of my 40th birthday, I was about 50 pounds overweight and uh, hadn't really attended to my health or my fitness for many many years. You know, the the sort of longer version is I had been a I had been an athlete in college. I was a swimmer at Stanford back in the late 1980s. And then subsequent to that, basically uh, went down the rabbit hole of drug and alcohol addiction. My alcoholism kind of put the cap on uh, what could have been a promising swimming career and, and ended it sort of too soon. And it wasn't a very pretty picture. So throughout college, until I was 31 years old, which is when I got sober, it was some pretty dark times. So I certainly wasn't attending to you know my diet and my fitness during that period of time. I was just partying and completely out of control. And when I was 31, I got sober, but then my life really revolved around recovery and repairing all the wreckage, all the damage that I had caused as a result of my drinking and using. So I was very intent on getting back all of those things that I destroyed. You know, I was alienated from my friends and from my family. I was just a completely unreliable, irresponsible person, you know, lying to everybody, including myself. And so when I got sober, I was very hell bent on trying to rectify all of that. And so that's what I did, you know, and as a result of kind of showing up day after day and, and kind of going the extra mile and working really hard, I was able to do all of that. I was able to succeed in repairing my relationships. I was able to become a productive member of society again. I would show up when I said I was going to show up. I'd follow through. I'd go the extra mile at work. Uh, I was able to look people in the eye and tell the truth and all of that good stuff. And so by the time I was 39 years old, I was a successful corporate attorney. I was on the partnership track at a very big, prestigious law firm in Los Angeles. I'd gotten married. We were building our dream house in, in Malibu Canyon. Like from the outside looking in, I had a really good life. You know, I sort of was on the precipice of achieving what you would call the American dream. And my whole life had been premised upon this promise that if you do these things, if you study hard and you get into the good school and you get the good job and you, you know, you're the early bird who gets the worm, that you will have a happy life. When I was 39, you know, I loved my wife and my family and all of that, but I wasn't happy. I was having kind of an existential spiritual crisis about my place in the world. I was very discontent in my chosen profession. And at the same time, I started to experience health problems. You know, I was 50 pounds overweight and I was subsisting on what a friend of mine calls the window diet. Like if you drive your car up to a fine dining establishment and roll the window down and they hand it to you through the window, that's what you eat. So my diet was cheeseburgers, French fries, nachos, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, you know, In-N-Out Burger, all that kind of good stuff. Or, you know, Chinese takeout at the law firm. You know, I was basically eating dinner at the law firm every night. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And you, you know what that lifestyle is like. Yeah. You never get anything healthy. If you can even find anything healthy, it'll be like the one Middle Eastern place that has kind of healthy stuff, but it, they still fry some of the stuff and you got to pick it out. And it takes like three hours because everybody's ordering from there who's not a fatty, bobatty lawyer. And at the same time, you're so miserable staying late in the law firm that you want that comfort food anyway. It's like the one highlight of your day, like, oh, at least I can eat something that, you know, can kind of medicate my emotions through this, you know, painful experience of doing whatever, you know, BS you're doing at the law firm late at night. 
And, you know, I've since gone on to get really in touch with just the extent to which we eat to kind of modulate our emotions. But in any event, yeah, so this sort of existential crisis that I was having kind of kind of intersected with this health crisis, you know, shortly before I turned 40, I had been working late at the law firm. Like on my way home, I stopped at Jack in the Box, had a bag of burgers, late eating them, you know, like watching Law and Order and started to doze off on the couch. My family was already asleep and decided time to go to bed and was making my way up the simple flight of stairs to my bedroom and had to pause, you know, halfway up a simple flight of stairs. I was winded. I was out of breath. I had tightness in my chest. I was buckled over, like sweat on my brow. And it was kind of a very like, it was like a crisis point. It was like a flashpoint where I realized, you know, in that moment, like, I can't believe that this is what I'm experiencing at age 39. Like, cause I'd always thought of myself as this sort of fit swimmer guy that I'd been in college. And, and yet the reality of how I was conducting myself and living my life was obviously very different from that. And so it was this very discreet, specific moment in time where I just realized like, I'm going to change. I'm going to change how I'm eating. I'm going to change how I'm living my life. That was kind of the tipping point that set in motion kind of all the dominoes that have fallen over that sure several years to take me to the point where i'm speaking to you and on a podcast right as an advocate not to be confused with an expert were you on those stairs thinking uh this is so pathetic or were you on those stairs thinking i'm gonna die in less than 10 years if i keep doing this to myself i mean how serious was that moment in the moment it was a little bit of both because uh, definitely I was feeling sorry for myself and this is pathetic. Like I was one of the fastest high school swimmers in the country. Like I was a good athlete and you know, how could I evolve so rapidly and so dramatically? So there was definitely a little woe is me, but at the same time, there was definitely a sense of imminent mortality. Uh, my mom would always say, you got to watch what you eat and heart disease runs in our family because her father, who had also been a champion swimmer, he was an American record holder. He was captain of the University of Michigan swim team in 1929. He was a, he almost made the Olympic team. He was a contemporary of like Johnny Weissmuller. And he was this great guy who never smoked, was never overweight, and certainly wasn't eating a window diet because it didn't exist in his day. And yet he died of a heart attack in his early 50s when my mom was still in college. And it was very traumatic for her. You know, of course, I never got to meet him. He died long before I was born, even though I was named after him and, you know, shared all, shared this sort of a lot of the same interests, uh, things that he cared about. And I did realize, like, wow, I'm going to die the same way that he died, but probably a lot sooner because I'm eating foods that didn't even exist when he was around. So, you know, it was it was a terrifying moment. So how did you decide to go about Because many people have done this, like, I'm going to get healthy when they're sitting at a barbecue eating. They're like, Monday, diet starts on Monday. And there's a huge difference between people who get up, go out, get a personal trainer, stop eating crap, realize one of the best things anybody ever told me about you know diet and food is everything you eat is a choice. Because a lot of people will get up and they'll have like a bad breakfast because they went out to brunch with their friends and they're like, oh, today's a wash. And it's like, no. You can eat healthy the rest of the day. Everything you put in your body is a choice. Every drink you have, every Coca-Cola you suck down or whatever is a choice. But it's tougher to actually implement that. So you and I talked a little bit offline, the gap between inspiration and implementation. That's not the gap between 
the subway, you know, mind the gap like in London. That this is a chasm and for some people it looks like the Grand Canyon and they're not about to be evil can evil jumping over that thing. Yeah, I'm obsessed with the gap that exists between inspiration and implementation. You know, why does somebody get it and another person doesn't? And I think that inspiration is easy. You know, all you have to do is go on Instagram or, you know, any social network and people post inspirational quotes or pictures with text on them. And like, oh, it's so inspiring. But, you know, I look at that stuff and I go, well, is that actually having any impact on anybody's behavior? You know, I don't know. And, you know, when I reflect on my own experience, uh, you know, I can divine certain, you know, things that I did that I think really made the difference. And, you know, the first one is just admittedly, I'm a very obsessive compulsive person. Like, you know, I'm a good alcoholic in that regard, I suppose. But you know, when I'm in, like I'm all in, like I'm an all in kind of guy. Like when I jump over that fence, like it's, you know, I, I can become easily obsessed with things. So I think that served me in this regard. It's certainly, you know, been a negative character trait in other aspects of my life. But in this respect, it was helpful. And the second thing really is that um, I never looked at what I needed to do as a diet or as something temporary. It was really a search for how can I find and identify a sustainable lifestyle path that is going to work within the construct of my busy life that I can maintain, you know, that is not something that has an endpoint, you know, that is just about adopting new principles to guide my life. And I think hand in hand with that comes an understanding and an embrace of this idea that it's not going to be perfect and it's not going to be linear. So I allowed myself to be imperfect and to fail. And I think that that's what trips a lot of people up when it comes to either getting fit or changing their dietary proclivities. They get all gung-ho and they say they're going to do this diet or they're going to go to the gym every day and then they miss a day or they have a weak moment and find themselves eating haagen in the middle of the night and they throw the baby out with the bathwater because they've established a you know, a high watermark that they can't meet. And then they flog themselves and go into some kind of shame spiral. And then they just abandon the whole thing altogether, as opposed to saying, like what you just said, which is, all right, well, you know, I did this thing that wasn't part of my plan. How can I do better next time? What's the next best right choice for me? And what can I learn from this misstep? Like what was going on with me emotionally that led me to make that choice uh, in that moment that didn't serve me and how can I do better next time? In other words, just being a little more gentle with yourself, I suppose. I wish I could tell you I went to the bookstore and got a bunch of books and watched a bunch of documentaries and tried to identify the ultimate human diet, but I really just started performing experiments on myself and I used my wife as my resource who my wife was always healthier than me and you know had much better habits than I did and I just leaned on her to help guide me and I did a seven-day, you know, vegetable juice cleanse, which was an extraordinary experience of kind of wiping the slate clean and putting me in a place where I really was able to start fresh and made a lot of mistakes along the way as I was playing around with diet. I was a junk food vegetarian for a long time, trying to convince myself that because I was vegetarian, I was healthy when it couldn't have been further from the truth. And it really wasn't until... What's a junk food vegetarian? Like eating fried crap all the time? Because it's not... You can eat French fries and, you know, Pizza Hut and Domino's every day as long as you don't put pepperoni or sausage on it and you're a vegetarian, right? So, so awesome. you, can, you can say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm healthy because I'm a vegetarian. But we know that that stuff's not, not healthy. 
but denial is a powerful thing. You know, the, th- yeah. the, the, the extent to which we can convince ourselves of certain truths that aren't objectively true. Ain't just a river in Egypt is what we say to that, right? Exactly. Tell me then, you started to do this piecemeal, and I think there's a lot here because we're big on habit change and little pieces over time versus massive commitments that you can't keep yourself to. And it sounds like that was how you started out strategically with this as well, because a lot of folks will start to step into this and they're like, all right, like you said, I'm an obsessive person, so I was able to do a seven-day juice cleanse. A lot of people they might just need to start by replacing their lunch from Big Mac to Tender Greens or something like that. And if you plug these little pieces in over months and months and months, it results in massive habit change that's not so bad rather than massive system shock, which leaves you feeling all weird and unsalted or something because you're not getting your daily dose of of chicken McNuggets or caffeine or whatever you're trying to cut out. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent in making small shifts that you can then sustain and become habits instead of trying to do everything overnight. Like I have to recognize that I'm, you know, in the minority as someone who likes to go whole hog overnight that most people don't function that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think it's great. Like people say to me, how do you start? And I'm like, well, start with one thing. Like maybe... Instead of buying milk next time you're at the supermarket, buy almond milk and get used to drinking almond milk instead of regular milk and see how you feel. Make a journal. See if this makes any change in your energy level. Create a new habit around that. And when you feel like that habit is established, then say, all right, well, what's the next habit that I can look at? And I think that that's a great way of kind of leaning into any kind of change. I mean, you know, I'm using milk and almond milk as an example. It's applicable to any habit in your life that's not serving you that you need to take a look at and begin to alter. Yeah, absolutely. That goes with anything from quitting negative habits to building new positive habits. One of the things that my friends and I, we used to be like, all right, we're going to go to the gym. They'd go like every day and you're sore and you feel like crap and you burn out and then you take a week off because you're just like, I hate my life because everything hurts. And for me, I found I just need to either go on specific times and days that are always that and it's like religious that you attend and and you tell even better recently I found you get a trainer because if you go to a trainer one you're paying for that and you're accountable and two you can go I am so sore from yesterday that I don't want to do too much and a good trainer will say okay no problem and they have you do different body parts or they have you do something less intense or slightly different that doesn't make you feel like you don't want to be there and they work you up to it, and pretty soon you're working out as hard as you want, as much as you want. You know, you don't really realize that you've been busting your butt because your trainer sort of works around that. Yeah, I mean, that brings up two great points. I mean, the first one is accountability, which is huge. It's very hard to change anything in your life without surrounding yourself with people to whom you're accountable in a positive way and a negative way. You know, you want people to keep you on track who are going to tell you the truth and keep you honest and that's super important for, for any goal that you have in your life. And I think the second thing is this idea of you know progressive incremental change. And you have a trainer who can help monitor that you know, to prevent that sort of gung-ho mentality that leads to burnout. And it's the old adage of you know, if a missile is or a rocket ship is taking off headed for the moon and it's you know, one degree off, it's going to miss the moon completely. Like these tiny little habits that we can, you know, alter that 
you know, when we, when our head hits the pillow at night, maybe we don't feel like we did all that much, but they add up. So a year later, you look back at your life and it looks completely different. And that's what's worked for me. You know, like when I began the journey of getting fit again, the idea of doing Ultraman or these things that I've done, they not only were they not goals, they weren't even ideas that I had of anything being possible. Like I just wanted to have more energy to enjoy my children. It didn't start that way, you know, so the journey takes on new tenors as you begin to change and you have to remain open and you have to be sort of uh, in the headspace that you're just trying to create new habits that are going to lead you in a new direction. And you don't necessarily need to know what that direction is at that time. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think a lot of people go, in a year, I'm going to do a triathlon. And it's like, whoa, slow your roll. That's really overly ambitious. And like you said, they'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. They take a month off because they got an ankle injury. And they go, well, I'm not going to hit my one-year goal of doing a triathlon, so I'm just going to not go to the gym anymore and eat pizza. And it sounds like a ridiculous example, but I see it a lot with people doing things in business. If I'm not making six figures by next year, I'm done. And it's like, Okay, I'm all about cutting things when there's too much sunk cost and you're not getting any ROI. But right now you're making 80 grand a year off of an idea that made no dollars last year and you're going to quit because you're not a millionaire. I mean, what the hell is wrong with you? Right, exactly. I mean, that's where we're our own worst enemies. You know, listen, if they had you as somebody they could call, you would set them straight, right? Which brings up the idea of having a board of advisors in your life. Like I'm a big believer in, in having mentors and not just one mentor and your mentor doesn't have to be, you know, Richard Branson, but just having people in your life, surrounding yourself with people in your life that are doing and, and living, you know, certain aspects of their life that you aspire to. So, and personally, you know, I have mentors for business. I have mentors for my marriage. I have mentors for, athletics. I have a coach for my training, like all of these different things. I have a whole bunch of different people that I count on and rely on to help keep me straight. And I think that requires, you know, it's tough for guys. It is. I was just going to talk about that. In our kind of alpha male driven culture, we're not raised to think that it's okay to raise your hand and say, I don't know the answer or I need help. But in my experience, the only time that I ever grow or that I improve in areas of my life is when I have the willingness to be vulnerable enough to say, I need help. Can you help me? And that's made all the difference in my life. So I think as men, we need to get over it. You know, the idea that you're supposed to always know the answer to everything is preposterous. And all it's doing is holding you back from reaching your greater potential. It's so true. So many guys are afraid to ask for coaches. And it's funny because everybody I know who's really good at something, they always have a coach. And so it's very strange for me to see, you know, just being somebody who's never been really afraid of that. I had a math tutor and stuff when I was growing up to ask for help, especially in areas of athletics, like losing weights or in dating, for example, or personal skills, social skills like we have at the Art of Charm. It's really tricky because so many people... It's like they just can't even stomach the thought of having to ask somebody else for help. It's scary. And there's this idea that, you know, that it's going to bruise your ego or 
you know, I see it all the time too, guys, they hire a coach and then they're not honest with their coach. They're telling their coach like a bigger story, than, you know, like making themselves look better or like tweaking, you know, what their workout is to try to impress the coach. And I'm like, that's not helping you. You know, this person can only help you. The extent to which a coach or a mentor can help you is directly related to the extent to which you are willing to be completely honest with that person. And that's where you get into trouble because guys, that's a tough road to hoe for a lot of guys. Yeah. It's always funny that we're our own harshest critic and we're always fighting against ourselves for that sort of thing. The more sort of humility you can grab in that area, the better off you're going to be and the sooner it's going to come. Yeah. This is what I went through when I wrote my book. You know, I knew that my book was only going to work if I was really willing to be vulnerable and honest about stuff that I've done in my life that I'm not proud of. And it was very difficult to do that. It was frightening. It was scary. But ultimately, I know that the book was successful because I had that willingness to do it. And whether it's with a coach or a therapist or a mentor, you know, I've learned that I have to get over myself and be honest. And when I'm willing to ask for help and more importantly, receive the help and implement it, that's when the magic happens. Excellent. So what about this hacking culture that we have, especially there's a lot of people who have podcasts that are about hacking your health. And I mean, there's tons of these, especially biohacking. That's like, there's a new word for it, for God's sake. It's in the description of this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I wrote a post on Medium uh, about my reaction to the whole hacking culture. It kind of it went a little bit viral. It's been misunderstood a little bit. I got really frustrated with just every time I open up Twitter, anywhere I looked online, it was all about the newest hack or the newest biohack or the shortcut to this or that. And to be clear, I'm a big fan of trying to identify efficiencies in your life. We're leading really busy lives. You know, there's only so many hours in the day. And to the extent that we can find ways to, you know, free time up so that we can focus better on what we're passionate about or our relationships or our profession. Those are all good things. I have absolutely no problem for that. I celebrate that. But I think inherent in this kind of hack phenomenon that's exploded, you know, there's conferences, there's how many podcasts are there out there about hacks? It's crazy. I think implicit in that is this idea that we can shortcut our way to good things in our life. I don't ascribe to that notion. I think that the true value of you know, of anything in life comes with the hard fought journey to get there. I'm interested in creating efficiencies in my life, but I'm not interested in shortcutting the experience that comes with striving for a goal that might seem out of reach. So for example, you could find people out there who will tell you, you know, I can get you to, to finish a marathon or an Ironman on like, you know, six hours of training a week or something like that. Well, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in showing up at the starting line of a race, knowing that I have put absolutely everything into preparing for it because I want to test myself. I want to see what my limits are. I want to see what I'm actually capable of. And if I hack my way to that starting line, and even if I finish, what is the experience or the emotion that I'm going to feel when or if I cross that finish line? I mean, I know myself, that I will be thinking, well, I could have done better. Or what if I actually tried? What if I actually completely invested myself in this experience? You know, how different would I feel? And what would be the value of that? So, you know, I think that no matter what you're trying to achieve in your life, whether it's a health goal, a fitness goal, a professional goal, maybe you're an entrepreneur, 
everywhere you look, there's this neatly packaged narrative of the overnight success story. And it's very sexy. It's very appealing to think like, well, I want that too. But when you peel back the layers on any success story, you realize that it's generally not that simple, that it didn't really happen that way. And I know that everything good that I have in my life that I've achieved has been very hard fought. And I wouldn't change that for anything. I really value everything that I learned along the way, all the failures, all the second guessing, all the hard times. That's what forges character. And I think that we've lost, we've, we've kind of lost sight of that. In other words, uh, this idea that the hack is the destination rather than just a tool. Yeah, that's true. That's true. In fact, I've, I've actually canned a few employees at the Art of Charm in the past. It's not just them. And it's not just millennials. I mean, that say, oh, you know, I'm trying to sort of four hour work week this. And I'm like, that is not a verb that you want to use around somebody who's paying you, by the way. And the downside was, because here's the thing, the upside is great. If you're going to four hour work week this and you're going to make it more efficient, then I have your time to do other projects. But if you're going to do something and it's not going to get done right, or you're not going to learn a process, or there's now no process for someone else to follow, we're actually worse off because of this. And I've noticed a lot of people in business and entrepreneurs especially being like, you know, I've really cut down on this and I've outsourced all this and this is working and this is out extra and this is gone. And I'm thinking, great. So now that you're doing all this yourself, you're making this super efficient, quote unquote, what happens if you get sick? If it's all outsourced, then what's stopping somebody from copying you? And then sometimes, yeah, there's really good trademark processes, but usually it's just everything's kind of getting half-assed, but it's getting half-assed at $2 an hour. Yeah, and I think that when you kind of look at the four-hour workweek ethos, what gets lost, and I think what Tim's true intention you know, was in writing that, is what are you going to do with this freed up time? Let's say you, you implement all these hacks and you do create all these efficiencies and suddenly you have free time. What are you doing with that? And I think that that doesn't get enough attention because that's the time that you should be using to invest yourself fully and what it is you're truly passionate about. And that's where the real hard work comes. Like, that's the thing you don't want to hack your way through, right? That's the thing that should require your full attention and all of your faculties to, you know, see it through. Um, you know, and there's just something really beautiful about saying, I'm all in on this and I'm going to see where it leads me. And failure, success, wherever this journey is going to take me, I'm embracing it. And at least in my experience, that's when I feel the most alive and the most fulfilled. And the fulfillment doesn't come from the success or the failure. It comes from saying, I'm on the journey. Excellent. I totally resonate with that. And I hate that word resonate. It sounds too hippy-dippy. But speaking of that particular sort of element of, of story, you'd mentioned in some previous communication about the power of story. I really like that because it really does more so than we even realize. It's it's one of the most unconscious drivers of us, which makes it even more powerful. Uh, we all have our stories about various things, and I don't mean like once upon a time type stories, of course, for those listening, but a lot of people have the stories created in their heads, which are almost mechanisms for how we interpret events, right? And those of you who've done a lot of like personal growth or self-helpy stuff will know what I'm talking about. But they're so powerful because you might have a story in your head that says something like, oh, well, I'll never get uh, the type of girl that I really want. So then it sort of fuels all these bad relationships where you're not really respectful of the other person and you might have trouble being faithful and you have trouble 
in your long-term relationships, and it comes down to something happened when you were younger and you create this story in your head and you filter the rest of your entire freaking life through this. Um, what is the story you tell yourself about yourself and how to change it? I mean, how much has that influenced the way that you see who you are and, and allowed you to change who you're being? Because you went from athlete to fat dude doing drugs and drinking all the time back to athlete. You had to have some major story changes here. Yeah, I love what you had to say uh, about story. Story is super powerful. We all have a story. Uh, we all tell our story every single day, even if we're not conscious that we're telling our story about ourselves. And I think it's really important to get more connected with what that story is and whether or not it's serving us or whether certain aspects of that story that we tell ourselves about ourselves are serving us. And and I think that, you know, the typical experience is that that story is informed by experiences that we have over the course of our life. And when an experience occurs, something happens inside of us and we make a decision. Is this part of my story or not? And a lot of people are kind of on autopilot about this. And we kind of reflect back on our life and think about certain isolated things that have happened to us and decide those are the things that form our identity. Those are the things that define us. Those are part of our story. So whether it's, you know, my dad didn't pay attention to me or, uh, you know, I'm not good on standardized tests or I have trouble talking to women, whatever it is, we make these decisions. And then we reaffirm those by telling other people that this is who we are and we behave accordingly. And we're not even conscious that we're doing it. I had a spiritual mentor, <laughs> a guru of sorts, and he used to explain it like this. Imagine your life as a branch of a tree. And along that branch, there are little knobbies, like little wooden knobbies. And each one of those is an experience that you had. And your brain uh, connects those knobs, those experiences, and creates a narrative out of those. And what's interesting is what we choose to identify as important versus other things that are not important, what we're ignoring versus what we're focusing on. And I think it's imperative that we all understand that we can change our story, that, yeah, maybe these things happen to us, but there's also all sorts of other things that happen to us that we're unconsciously choosing to not make part of our story. And if you really kind of do the interior work and get to know yourself and are objectively evaluating things that happen in your life, and these can be unlocked through meditation or through journaling. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways of, of connecting with that. You begin to get a more objective picture about who you actually are and realize like, hey, you know, that doesn't have to be my story. I can change the story. And I've had to change the story I tell myself about myself many, many times over. And it's a constantly evolving thing. And the truth is, is that the story that we tell ourselves about who we are is not objective. It's not real. It's just how we decide to characterize it. Things that happen in our life are just that. They're things. And they're only important to the extent to which we attach meaning or importance to them. And if we decide, I'm not going to give that thing any more of my attention. I'm going to choose to put my attention on something else, like something that happened to me that was good, that's more affirming, that becomes you know, something that you can latch onto and create momentum around that will shift your perspective and ultimately your behavior as you navigate yourself through the world. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's uh I know it can be tough to talk about a lot of the stuff that we've had in our our lives moving backwards especially and I think there's a lot of value in learning from people who've been through it because I think a lot of people right now who are standing at the top of their own staircase 
heaving and sweating are thinking, I, this is impossible for me to go back or it's impossible for me to get anywhere from here. And as you said, it's, it's not. It's just a, it's part of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing that. Is there anything that you want to share that I haven't asked you? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, we need to, we're all better served by understanding that there's a distinction between our thinking mind and our higher consciousness. And most of us are walking around and our brains are running us rather than us having control over our thoughts. And we loop, you know, we loop these negative thought patterns. Oh, I'm lousy at this. I can't do it, blah, 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 whatever it is. You know, you notice like you try to sit down and meditate and your brain attacks you and you're thinking all these thoughts and you have no control over it. And to understand that that's not necessarily you, that's your mind running an algorithm, like running a program. And so the interior work and the meditation, what's been so beneficial for me is, is trying to develop a certain level of mastery over how my thinking mind impulses me and developing a greater kind of awareness of, you know, how it operates. So when negative thoughts kind of crop up, which they do all day long for me, I can say, oh, that's interesting that my brain is telling me I'm this. And then I have a choice. Oh, well, maybe I'm not going to listen to that this time because I know better. You know, I know that I am not that person. That's just my thinking mind, my monkey brain, you know, trying to, you know, pigeonhole me into some corner that doesn't serve me. Thanks so much. And where can people find more from you? Uh, best place is my website, which is richroll.com. Uh, you could check out my book. It's called Finding Ultra. I've got a cookbook coming out this spring, and I've got a podcast called The Rich Roll Podcast, which you can find on iTunes or on my website. Excellent. Thanks so much, Rich. And of course, we'll have your contact slash Twitter slash whatever in the show notes, as well as links to your site and books. So thanks again. All right, excellent. The gap between inspiration and implementation, always interesting and something that's been covered a lot here in just different formats. And it's something that successful people see all the time. The hacking culture actually backfiring. I'll leave that decision up to you. And the importance of accountability, something that we talk about a lot, but that very few of us actually implement because it does puncture holes in the ego, which none of us really like. And last but definitely not least, the power of story, what you tell yourself about yourself and how to change it. Reminds me of that quote, if you talk to your friends like you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. And of course, the show feedback is the key. This is a fanarchy. It's run by you, and we rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Rich on Twitter. We're going to have him linked up in the show notes in our boot camp, live training details bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Remember, there's two dots in there. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed, what's wrong with you? Subscribe in iTunes, subscribe in Stitcher. Things download automatically. You don't have to remember to go get the newest ones. If we could only download it directly into your brain, that is the next step. And of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android, whatever you need, whatever you got. Special thanks to the Jasons for helping in production of the Art of Charm podcast. And everybody else, go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is not that fancy email that you send me, although I do love those, but it's a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there, get social, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. 
Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.